Hello, beautiful darlings and gal pals. Welcome to Super Funkin' Serious with Sparkle Sid. Today we are kickstarting our regular series of episodes about the Eurovision Song Contest. For those unfamiliar, consider this your Eurovision 101 lesson to get you caught up on the 60 plus history of Europe's favorite TV show. Best of all, dear listeners, you are not alone in this journey of Europop. My guest today to help guide us through this Eurovision expedition is Samantha Ross, who is also an unabashed Eurovision fan, contributor for ESCinsight.com, and one of four American co-hosts of the 12 Points from America podcast. Today, we start by giving you a primer on the song contest and give you a total of six new songs that we think you should know about if you don't know anything at all about the show. Will we wet your whistle? Find out now. Hey, darlings and gal pals. This is Sparkle Sid calling. I have Samantha Ross here. Hi, Samantha. How you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing very well. Just enjoying the evening with some scarfing today. You know, it works best, right? <laughs> now, Samantha, you are a Eurovision blogger, which is why I had you on. Can you talk a little bit more about what you do and where, what you write and uh, what kind of media you work with that involves Eurovision? Uh, that's opening up a little bit of a can of worms with me. Uh, I have done many different things in the Eurovision sphere throughout the last oh, 10, 12 years or so. Started out just as a fan, you know, adoring the show from a distance. And I eventually started my own little personal blog, you know, just me and a WordPress site uh, back in like 2008, 2009. Uh, in 2011, I attended the contest for the first time. And I've been going ever since. Uh, since late 2011, I've been working with escinsight.com doing uh, editorial work, interviewing, podcasting work with them. Uh, in 2014 and 2015, I actually worked behind the scenes with the EBU team, sorry, the European Broadcasting Union team, so like the organizers for Eurovision. Uh, in 2014 and 2015, I actually worked behind the scenes with the European Broadcasting Union, so sort of the, the organizing body for the ESC that we'll talk about today, uh, at the Junior Eurovision Song Contest, which is like the kids' version of the big show. So I did that for two years, and in 2017 and 18, I was the assistant head of press for the delegation of Bulgaria. Even though I am not Bulgarian, I do not speak Bulgarian, but somehow they they hired me. Uh, and yeah, so I've, uh, since I guess the last year and a half or so, I've been also doing my own podcast called 12 Points from America. So it's just a Eurovision Song Contest podcast nerdery geek session with three of my best friends here in Minnesota. Uh, so yeah, scope us out, 12pointsfromamerica.com or 12pointsusa on Facebook or Twitter. And I love that podcast too, personally. I listen to it all the time because um, it's especially good for those who are new to Eurovision because there was at one time, uh, who was the gentleman that didn't know anything about Eurovision? Probably Danny. Uh, Danny didn't know anything about Eurovision. So it was almost like he was like part of the audience. So it was a great way to like kind of have like someone to bond with in the show. So that was kind of a fun little, little added experiment. And that kind of worked out in its favor, but now he kind of seems to know more than I think I do sometimes. I know it's sort of a double-edged sword. I think we've, we've created a monster. We've taught him too much. Uh, it's, right. uh, yeah, but it's, <laughs> you know, we, the, now it's, it's turned from Danny being sort of the Eurovision neophyte to now Danny being able to dunk on all of us with, uh, with his, with his references. Yeah. And he's just hilarious. So like all, I, I love all four of the guys or all, 
four of the total, three of the guys plus me. And, you know, self, self-appreciation is also important. I love myself. But uh, I love the team. But, you know, Danny just adds this extra flair to it. And, yeah. yeah, I love them all. Yeah. Either that or he's the master of the Google search, which some people can be. <laughs> I, you know what? Considering that both Eric and Danny work uh, as as quiz bowl researchers, uh, at least partially, oh. uh, so like trivia is a big deal for us. So the Google Foo is very, very strong in our team. Ah, makes sense then <laughs> for sure. So yeah, Samantha, I have you down uh, as a guest because you know a lot about Eurovision as well as I do, and I kind of wanted to pick your brain about. To those who don't know what Eurovision is, could you uh, describe to those who may not know what the Eurovision Song Contest is and perhaps how, when it was created and, and why? Uh, well, it was originally established back in the mid-50s. First contest was back in 1956 uh, as a project from the European Broadcasting Union to bring together broadcasters from a, a continent that was just emerging out of World War II, war-torn, very deeply affected, by, by the actions of the decade previous. And it was a way for singers and songwriters and artists to come together and share music in a healthy, competitive way. It was also a great way for broadcasters to share the newest technologies with each other. So if the BBC was just getting this great new camera equipment, suddenly they can have access to you know, a broadcaster in Germany and be able to share ideas. So it was really a sort of twofold thing. Since 1956, it's gone from seven countries participating to upwards of 40 on average. It's just grown and grown and grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, every year, it is a country versus country musical death match that brings together the socio-political intrigue of the United Nations, the pageantry of the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games, and the fireworks displays of... God only knows what. I mean, many eyebrows have been singed over the years. But it's, yeah, but it's every country sends one song to represent them per year. And you have three minutes to basically show the world what you got. Mm -hmm. I always like to tell people, even though it's not the best comparison to say it's like American Idol, only you're judging the song, not the talent. I guess I could say that. In a way. Yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, you get to know the artist as well. Uh, but mm -hmm. oftentimes you'll have the biggest name in Russian music going up against a complete and utter neophyte from, you know, the, who just won the X factor in Malta and everybody's right. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's got those same three minutes. So what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me. I love destiny. I hope she comes back next year. Yeah. Her time will come. We'll talk about destiny later. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how'd you get involved with the uh, Bulgarian delegation to go behind the scenes? Uh, that kind of started, that would have been 2015, because uh, Bulgarian te National Television actually hosted the Junior Eurovision uh, that year. Mm -hmm. So I got to know some of the folks behind the scenes over there, and they said, you know what, we need an English language speaker who works well with our delegation, who you know knows us, who can interview well with, uh, and, and liaise well with uh, a lot of the press that's on, on site at Eurovision, because I, you know, after I've been going there for so many years, I know half the people in the press center. And it just kind of clicked. So I uh, worked with them in Kiev in 2017 with the song Beautiful Mess by Christian Kostov, who ended up coming in second place overall, which was incredible. And the following year with uh, this, the group Equinox uh, with the song Bones, who also made it to the final, which for Bulgaria was a really big deal. 
because it's not a nation with a big budget. It's not a nation with a massive ton of resources. So for them to make the finals, it's it's a big deal for them. So I was really thrilled to be on the team with them. And both of those songs, we'll have I'll have to put them in the show notes, but they're phenomenal songs. They just have that quality to them that makes it a, a standout Eurovision song, even if they didn't win. But to make it to the final, yes, like you said, is a huge deal for a country like Bulgaria, for sure. I love it. Yeah. Now, Sam, I, uh, I asked you to bring three songs you thought were the epitome songs, or at least your favorite songs from Eurovision, and we're going to go through them and why. I also did the same as well. I have three, so you have six songs. So if you know nothing about Eurovision, after this episode, you're going to know six full songs, and that is three minutes each, I believe, except I think one is a little bit longer. Um, we're going to go in a little bit of a chronological order. We're going to start with a really favorite and popular one. If you know of a little Swedish pop group named ABBA, you would know about the song Waterloo. Waterloo, couldn't escape if I wanted to. Waterloo was indeed a Eurovision winner. It was uh, the winner in for Sweden in one on April 4th, uh, 1974. And it is an amazing song. Do you have anything to say about that, Sam? It about was, an, song? It's, it's a classic. You, you know, when you ask somebody to name a Eurovision song, nine times out of 10, Waterloo is one of the first songs people mention. It launched the global superstardom career of one of the most enduring pop acts in history, not just Swedish history, but just pop music history. And so much of it can be traced to three minutes on stage in Brighton. And it's amazing to think it was really sort of a watershed moment, uh, both of the contest and for pop music as a whole. So you, you can't, you can't not talk about Waterloo. Why do you think its appeal uh, led to its victory in, in that year? versus songs by its competitors like Olivia Newton-John, Long Live Love, and stuff like that. Why a song about a historical event? What do you think what do you think that might be? I think it wasn't necessarily about the historical event, but just the metaphor of uh, a, a massive defeat being, you know, a, a, a metaphor for being conquered and won over by love. It was it was fun, it was bright, the presentation, it was these four gorgeous Swedes wearing kind of crazy costumes, even by 1974 standards. It was upbeat, it was peppy, it was catchy. It was also one of the first years that a nation could sing in any language that they wanted to, not just their national language. So if, say, Sweden was stuck singing Swedish, it might not necessarily have had the appeal, but English being a little bit more of a universal language, at least at that time, it was that much more accessible. So not to knock Olivia Newton-John, Long Live Love was a happy, clappy little bop. Cicciola uh, Cinquetti, uh, or, or Giliola Cinquetti, excuse me, is a completely different song from a completely different time. <laughs> right. Yeah, Google that one if you've got three minutes to kill. Uh, well, maybe put that in the show notes and yeah, with, with a warning, uh, but Julia Cinquetti, who came in second place that year, another absolute evergreen, uh, one of my favorite songs of all time actually came in dead last that year. It was a Portuguese song called, uh, Ida Poxa Deus, uh, that, you know, I loved, but nobody else seemed to, but ABBA just seemed to tick all of the boxes. It was catchy it was visually enticing it was fun they didn't put a foot wrong 
I think it's one of those songs, um, especially when you watch the video, which you'll get in the show notes, um, is the image was also a part of it because people were like, what are these crazy Swedes wearing these crazy costumes? And um, they didn't do choreography, but at least they looked presentable. At least they looked like they were in show business. And I think that's what stood them out amongst all the other acts. And that's what led to their victory. Um, another reason why I really love this song is because um, it's one of the, it's, it kind of represents the era where there's lots of uh, love songs about two people in love. And of course that was a recurring theme in, in that era. Um, and if you move on to 1975, you get songs about love and peace and, and of, of everybody's nature, which is what my next song is about. It's Joy Fleming. I'm Nita Khan. I'm Baruch Hussain. I kind of ruined that a little bit, but if you uh, loosely translate it, it's called Our Love Will Build a Bridge. The English version that was recorded, which I will put a clip of as well, is uh, called Bridge of Love. So it's a little, a little fun. number it's very 70s and joy fleming is a powerhouse vocalist and it had that song is a powerful message if you are not up on your feet or shimmying by the instrumental in the like two-thirds point of the song you are not alive <laughs> i believe at least such a beautiful song it's about being oneness with everybody else building a bridge between two people and just appreciating being together in one moment um do you have a comment about Joy Fleming or uh, the song at all? This song was so deeply underrated the night of the contest. Looking back on that contest, I'm shocked that it didn't place top five or or top three. It was, yeah, it was just this big sweeping, big voiced. It, it's like if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah and your aunt just has a little bit too much wine and just just mans the karaoke booth and and you know come hell or high water she's gonna belt something out. I, I feel like everybody's got some member of the extended family that they could see in Joy Fleming as she as she just belts out those high notes that wail near the very end. Uh, it's just fun and uplifting, and especially considering the fact that Germany at the time was a divided nation. Exactly, it was uh, its tag was West Germany because of the East and West divide at that time. Right, exactly. And East Germany didn't participate at Eurovision. Uh, it was purely the West. And just adding that extra layer of love and humanity, building a bridge, you know, it's, it's, it's really touching. And it's just a freaking bop. Right. <laughs> I, I've, I've noticed on my phone, it repeats itself. It doesn't like go to the next song. It just keeps going. And sometimes I listen to it three times in a row. It just has that moment. It's, a sh it's short enough to where you're like, you got a little bit, but you want more, you know, so you just listen to it multiple times. Um, and I love Joy Fleming. I've been following her career a little bit until her passing, um, rest in peace, which I, I'm, I'm sad she's gone, but, um, she provided the voice to, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the German, um, folklore story, Dieter Wally. Um, they made a really tacky version in the, in the eighties where it, there was a, um, it, the lead singer was this like, kind of like chunkier woman, but the lead singer, uh, the voice they did, it was a musical and they, um, Joy Fleming provided the voice of the lead character and she yodels in it. And it's so fun. And the fact that she's so inept, like she can do like 60s kind of style, like Dusty Springfield vibes. 
70s disco vibes and then we get to the you know the 80s and she's yodeling like what like what a yeah she can do everything i love it so much my third song is um goes all the way up to 1998 um and that song is diva by donna international background story about Donna International. Um, she caused a little bit of a, a controversy in Israel um, before she uh, went to the stage on your, at Eurovision where she, uh, because she was a transgender female um, and she was, and because of the whole um, political tone in Israel, she, um, she was very controversial, uh, but she ended up winning anyways. And with a song that actually does not have any orchestration at all. Um, the past two songs were uh, done with live orchestras, but this one is the first one done with an entirely a pre-recorded track and just uh, live vocals, I believe. Um, and it is a it is a great song. It's very dance oriented. I believe it's um, produced by uh, uh, Afrinisan, I think is the name his name is, and um, who's worked with Don International before Eurovision. And I just love it. It's a great song about female empowerment and being being your own and individual and i think this is the beginning of a of an era where songs were about being yourself and being authentic and um starting from within and if you if you use that perspective to create good within the world you can do so much more and i think that's a great way to kind of look at life when you're on a global stage what do you think about uh down international sam it's, I mean, you took a lot of what I was going to say out of my mouth. It was such an important victory. Uh, you know, I, I think back, uh, ESC Insight, the web, one of the two websites I work with, uh, they've been doing a series called Eurovision Castaways, where my friend Ellie will interview members of the Eurovision community, generally other, other members of the press. We're all fans. We all love the contest. But she recently, uh, we recently published a episode with uh, our friend and colleague, Elaine O'Neill, and she's also trans. And for a young Elaine to see somebody like her, even before she knew what trans was a thing, but like, okay, this is somebody who can make her own path and be who she wants to be and is her best self. And not only that, but she's being recognized by all of Europe and hoisting the trophy high. There's a place in the world for me. It, it you know, I, I can't imagine what it meant to her. I can, I can maybe empathize, but I cannot walk in those shoes. Um, and I, I, I was honored to, to be able to meet her in, um, in 2011. And I had the chance to, because I mean, she came back to Eurovision in 2011 with a song that frankly was not quite as strong, but for me to be able to go up to her and shake her hand at the opening reception and, and meet her and say, you make me so incredibly proud to be a modern Jewish woman. And I, I almost cried and she was actually getting a little bit teary too. Cause she's like, people have been being so mean to me throughout this whole process. Nobody's liked my song. It was like the first nice thing anybody said to me all fortnight. And so Donna means so much to so many people. And like I said before, in the case of Waterloo, the song is a bop. Like we haven't even gotten to the song itself, but it's a bop. Yeah, the moment you hear that sting of the, like the very beginning, you're just like, do do, and you just, you just want to like take like a, 
a diva stance is what I say. Just, yeah. just strike a pose and get the song started. It is just a great song. Um, um, what, uh, one thing as a queer, uh, from a queer perspective for myself, um, is the, that was kind of the beginning that LGBT acceptance at Eurovision started to become a thing as well. It was very, um, it started to open up people's eyes to realize, Hey, there are more people than just, you know, buttoned up people who are buttoned up and, you know, there's actually people that are creative and fun and can be bubbly and not take life so seriously. And that's, I think that's what led to Eurovision becoming more of an arena show because everyone was having fun and having a great time rather than sitting down and wearing suits and ties and just sitting down and clapping politely. They're now up on the air, raising their arms, ra uh, raising flags, uh, you know, and they're just having a great time. And I think that's, that's one of the beginnings that you see, one of the beginning times of Eurovision that you see that change in the atmosphere and attitude about Eurovision. Um, in that regard, uh, we move on to, I believe, 2008. So one of your favorite songs. Mm -hmm. When you asked me to pick a song that seemed to be pure Eurovision, I my brain went immediately to Ukraine's runner-up entry in 2008, a song called Shady Lady by Annie Lorak, which, fun fact, her name is actually Carolina, but Annie Lorak is her, her birth name spelled backwards. So, fun fact. Uh, it is pure pop confectionery, but so beautifully produced. It's Eurovision to a T. It's 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 choreographed just within an inch of its life. The the perfection of the outfit and the sparkle and the 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 it just do yourself a favor, watch the performance, and marvel at how far the contest had come in the span of 10 years that Donna International was serving up a great danceable number, but she was still very static. It was still one singer and a couple of backgrounders on stage singing into a microphone. Like, like you were saying how the contest was then becoming more of a, a an arena show rather than just a stage show. The performances often rose to that level as well. And Shady Lady is a great, great example of that. It's that same vibe of really danceable, really poppy, really fun, but bumped up to the next level. It still breaks my heart that that did not take the win. Yeah, that is a phenomenal performance. I watched it earlier today just to kind of prepare for the episode. And um, there's some really awesome moments of choreography where she moves her hand and it like affects all the guys and they like fall backwards. And I'm just like, like, and then they get back up right like at the same time it's just like beautiful and some of them sing too and and she dances a lot and she doesn't lose breath or anything and you see you're out of breath at the end but like phenomenal performance i think the only thing the only gripe i have about performance is it's a it's a beautiful backdrop that she has with the clear things but i was like why are those scratches not really buffed there they could like make it a little a little cleaner but other than that with the lights on it was totally fine but you know i'm from a, i'm from uh from afar is probably a lot Easy, but less noticeable, but I did love that. It's just, and it's also high energy of a song, and the performance is great. And she she climbs on top of that backdrop, and she yeah, she's mm -hmm. she's all over that stage, and yeah, well deserved. But 
yeah, unfortunately not the winner that year, but um, neither was Joy Fleming and she's in our hearts forever. <laughs> and then I believe we move on to 2017 and we go to a winner. Yep. Yeah, if I'd done the runner-up for this year, it would have been the Bulgarian song that I mentioned earlier. Uh, no, uh, I, as the run-up to the 2017 contest in Kiev uh, happened, I kept saying to myself, if Bulgaria doesn't win it, I want Portugal to take it. And the song Amar Pelos Dois, Love for Both of Us by Salvador Sobral is this classic, timeless, Portuguese language jazz ballad from a country that had never come any higher than sixth place in their 50 some odd years of participating at the contest. Portugal had been seen as sort of the lovable losers, that they were lucky to even qualify for a final when the time came and always sending something that was still very Portuguese. They were more likely to sing in Portuguese language than not. I think they'd only sent one song that was bilingual, but almost entirely monolingual Portuguese entries when a country can send a song in any language they want. They stick with themselves. And they ended up selecting at their national process a quiet little jazz ballad sung by a singer who was awkward and scraggly and kind of moved around like he was kind of awkward and not necessarily fitting in his own skin in an ill-fitting suit. And we found out later on that he was actually very ill at the time. He was actually on the heart transplant waiting list through all, all of this. He tried to downplay it, but, you know, we knew what was going on. And he gets up on stage uh, in Kiev and just a silence falls over the arena, this, you know, 20,000 person venue, and you could hear a pin drop as Salvador Sobral goes up there and sings about his broken heart, both metaphorical, but we also know physical. And he ends up winning the damn show with the biggest margin of victory ever. And I'm, you know, heartbroken that our team came in second, but I, you know, if we were going to lose to anybody, Amar Pelostoish was magic. And I understand why we came in second. That's a beautiful sentiment. Um, uh, one thing that um, surprised me when it won was thinking that since he was, because of his condition, because he wasn't present for some of the dress rehearsals, that people wouldn't be able to connect with him more. But I think because he was one of the few people who had simple staging, it was just, you know, the backdrop and him on a stage with a mag microphone and him just, and his emotion. And I think that's what stood out the most was his emotion because you didn't have much to look at. You didn't have all the extra fireworks, as he had mentioned in his acceptance speech. You know, music isn't fireworks. It's about feeling and emotion. And that's I, that was a beautiful sentiment to say and just to bounce off that is just absolutely phenomenal. I, I just I melt every time I hear it. I melted the first time that I heard it in the national final. As, as Portugal was selecting their song and it still has that same effect on me even now a couple of years later I just kind of sit there and I just have this quiet three minutes of just ah it's it's timeless it's just perfect simplicity 
in a genre that I don't normally go for too. I actually have a playlist of uh, Salvador as well as his, his sister, Luisa, who wrote the song, um, a playlist of just them, <laughs> and I call it Sobrale Due or something like that. And it's a really nice one to calm down and chill too, because her music yeah. is very calming and she has a very soothing voice as well. Yeah, his his doctors back in Lisbon had not actually cleared him to attend the full two weeks of rehearsals in, in Kiev, uh, just for his, his, his health situation. So his sister, who, like you said, wrote the song and is an incredibly talented singer in her own right, said, you know what? I'll, I'll stand where you're going to stand. Just do the blocking. I'll sing it for you. It's not like I don't know the words. And... Yeah, and the two of them together are just an incredible duo. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, it was just a great year. Um, and then we move on to something that'll be <laughs> entirely different, seems like. <laughs> this is the Icelandic entry from 2019. Hatridmensigra, or Hatred Will Prevail, by Hattari. Uh, basically, if you take the sweetness and simplicity and elegance of Salvador Sobral and you swing the pendulum in the complete opposite direction and you just basically give all of Europe and Australia because they participate too a swift kick in the butt and scandalize a continent all in one fell swoop it was Hattari Hatrin Sigra is this SM inspired industrial metal gothic art pop incredible installation of protest and commentary skirting the rules of the contest, which is supposed to be, in theory, an apolitical event, and just turning the whole thing on its head. And it was incredible. It's one of my favorite songs at the contest ever, which is strange because I could say the same thing about Amar Pelos Deutsch, but it just goes to show that the image that you have about Eurovision, that it's all pop, it could be anything you want it to be, anything and everything, sometimes all at the same time. Yeah, one thing that um, stood out about the performance was obviously it was something that was not really... It was out there and it was definitely um, for me a grower. It was a shower for sure because um, because you had the visual element that kind of startles you at first if you're not used to this BDSM culture or if you're familiar with it and you're not really have seen it on stage, it's kind of, it throws you off a little bit. But um, when I actually listened to the song without any visuals, I kind of got into the beat of it and you can kind of feel that um, aggressive energy to it. but. It's in a way that's smart for like um, I believe Clemens is is grew up with a rich in a rich family I believe and um, I'm not sure if, uh, about the other two other one but um, but they came from uh, they're yeah I was about to say they're they're related um, and um, they had uh, it almost seems like they started this as like a, a almost like as a way to create a statement about their society. And like what's wrong with capitalism and of course that's what they they're open about that as well but the way that the interview is so deadpan and just like as a matter of fact that it kind of is as a matter of fact we're we're a part of a capitalist society but 
they're kind of taking it and messing with it and just twisting it up. And, and then they ended up on the Eurovision stage and getting to the final. And I was, I was like, okay, their message is getting across in a way that's different than everybody else is doing about love and peace and being harmony, you know, being together in harmony, but they're coming in and going, Hey, F the system. This is what life looks like. And we're representing it this way. Yeah. They had a really interesting sort of spin on it. Like, yeah, our song is at its heart about love and peace, even though it's called hatred will prevail. It's if you no, it's, it's really, if you let, hatred into your heart this is the dystopian terrifying future that you have in front of you and just that sort of counterplay between uh the harsh 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 sort of like growling vocals that you have in the verses versus clement's sort of high very delicate tones actually sung in the chorus it's that really cool kind of counterplay it's not just you know screaming for screaming's sake it's actually very very intelligently done yeah, there's those songs are there's a wide range of what Eurovision is and what and there's a lot more out there, but this is just a little sampling. We got Euro Cheese, we got Disco and well as SNN, you know, and I think that's the beautiful thing about Eurovision. We all we all have our opinions and different feelings about certain songs, and that's why some win and some don't, but there's also more and there could be also more to it. But in the end of the day, is we're all coming together for music. We're all coming together as humans and our love of creating something in a, and, and living in the moment. So I think that's, I think that's where the essence of why I love your vision comes in. No, it's, it, there's something for everybody. I mean, after, you know, 60 some odd years, it, this contest has become so much to so many different people. It's, it's a musical platform. It's a political, uh, political statement, even though it's not supposed to be, but you know, things happen. It's a way for people to get together, for collaboration to create to be created. It's a way for host nations, because whoever wins the contest gets to host it the following year, so it bounces around from country to country. It's a way for nations to brand themselves uh, on the global market in a way that they might not have the opportunity otherwise. Um, a friend of mine actually did his PhD thesis on the effect of... Uh, of Eurovision on tourism and the growth of the tourism industry in Estonia when they hosted it. Uh, so it's, it's, there's, it's more than just a pop music contest. There is so much meat on these bones. <laughs> yeah. You, you could, you could treat it like a, t a light, happy TV show if you want to. And that's totally cool. A lot of people do, but you can write your PhD on it too. Exactly. And, and many have done so, which I really love. I just want to take a quick moment to mention that if you are enjoying this podcast, please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Search for Sparkle Sid in the iTunes store and tell us what you think. Thanks, darlings. So we started talking about the music, but now we're going to talk about the voting process. Samantha, can you uh, tell us a little bit how the voting works in the finals every year? Sure, absolutely. Uh, there are basically two processes at play when it comes to the Eurovision voting. There is a public televote where everybody watching the show can call in, uh, with the exception of San Marino, because, you know, they have no real phone system of their own. They basically piggyback off of Italy. But San Marino is a special place for many reasons. Anyway, most nations will have a public televote 
where you can call in and vote for your favorite song. You cannot vote for your own country. I'm sure many have tried. And numbers will be crunched with that. Then there is also a jury. Every nation will have a five-member professional jury made up of people of all ages, genders, backgrounds, mostly music professionals or music journalists. But they will also crunch their numbers and have a separate number system. Uh, Then each nation, one by one, will announce their jury points. And it gets very exciting. Uh, Points are given out from each country from one to eight and then 10, and then 12, the magical douze point, as it's often called, that everybody's vying for. Uh, And then after that, we hear the votes from the public. And this again, country by country, even though nowadays they're presenting it in a little bit more of a more dramatic fashion. But do yourself a favor, watch a semi-recent Eurovision, go through the voting system. It's a lot of fun. It's way more exciting than you think a basically a glorified accounting process would be. But there is excitement, there are boos, there are cheers, there are tears. There's a lot of champagne in the green room. It's a good time. It takes a long, long time. <laughs> it does. It, Yeah, sometimes, you know, with 40 some odd countries, it often takes longer than the songs themselves. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> um, and, and one thing I love about that is recent times they've changed it to where they announce it in a way that's more exciting and thrilling. So you don't know till the very end. Um, like, for example, in 2009, when we knew that uh, Norway won, it was like halfway through the voting we already knew. And it was just like, all right, throw more points at him, throw more points. And it was just kind of like it lost its luster halfway through that voting process. But this way, now you're at the beginning where you're seeing the two people side by side, who's going to win, who's going to win. And then it gets super intense and nail biting. So I really love that, that idea about that. They changed that. It's so much more thrilling. Yeah. It's incredibly exciting, especially the last couple of years where the winner of the public televote isn't necessarily the same act as the winner of the jury vote. Like in, for example, 2016, we knew that the winner of the jury vote was the act from Australia, which is an incredible song. And we realized as the votes for the public were coming through that the winner of the public vote was going to be Russia. But was Russia going to have enough points to overtake Australia? And as we found out, to overtake Ukraine, who ended up coming in second place with both the jury and the televote and ended up winning the whole thing because it's all just the way the numbers fall in. And similar things happened in the 2019 contest when when uh, we realized that at the time <laughs> there were some issues with the numbers that year. Unfortunately, there were some discrepancies in the counting that were corrected later. In the show, they were announcing that Sweden had won the jury vote. And it turns out later it was North Macedonia. And we knew that... Uh, Norway had won the public televote, but the way that the numbers were going to come was it ended up with the Netherlands taking the whole thing. So it's, it's a lot of number crunching, but it just creates this real air of excitement at the end of it. And that's something that was given to us by uh, actually the Swedish, uh, the Swedish national final that the Eurovision contest basically borrowed slash stole slash was inspired by, the Swedish national final. And they're so good at creating that drama that they just, use like, ah, we're going to use that too. And it's worked. It's incredibly, incredibly nerve wracking. I just want to comment on that final moment between Sweden and, um, and the Netherlands was um, seeing John oh, God. Lovick, like super excited because he thought he was going to win. And that moment of like, boom, deadpan. That was just, it, it was, it, it was, I felt sorry for him, but I also was like, oh my gosh, like it was just, it was a, 
it was the it was the drama you expect to see in a in a show like that, and it was oh it was so great. <laughs> so is uh, do you see any correlation with some sort of voting? Do you see um, any specific countries voting for specific people um, consistently, or do you see it kind of a free for all? There are certain trends that you definitely do see year after year. Uh, a lot of sort of critics of the contest will call it quote unquote political voting. I prefer to see it as more cultural voting. That if, for example, imagine that you are a television viewer from, I don't know, Belarus, and you turn on your TV and you see an act from Spain. Yeah, the song is great. You see an act from Sweden. Yeah, the song is great. But then you see the song from Russia and you realize, oh, that's an artist who I know because the Russian music scene is big here in Belarus or that artist from Ukraine. I know her. I've seen her on, on a local TV show. You know, she was touring around here. You see a little bit more of that kind of cross promotion and that sort of cross cultural cross cultural blocks kind of forming through that. There was a lot of talk back in it would have been, I think, 2003. Uh, one of the years that uh, the fact that I say this, one of the years that the United Kingdom came in last place, uh, that pundits were saying, oh, nobody voted for us because of the war in Iraq. It's like, no, nobody voted for you because the song wasn't very good and your singers were out of tune. People aren't necessarily thinking, oh, I will not vote for this country for this political reason or that political reason. If that were the case, Israel would probably not have won in, 20, in 2018. It's people vote for what is familiar and what is relevant to them. And if that is something from a neighboring country, sure, that's great. If it's something that touches them personally, it doesn't necessarily matter what country they're from. I mean, we look at the Portuguese song that I mentioned earlier, Marta Lush Dois, it's a song in Portuguese that nobody outside of Portugal will speak. Maybe some, some folks in Romance language speaking countries will understand some of it. But when a song hits, it hits and it crosses borders. That being said, there are some trends that do pop up. Greece and Cyprus, if the songs are both in the final, chances are points will be swapped. But, that, but that's because a lot of these singers in country A are known in country B and back and forth. So anything can happen, but the winner will win regardless of where it's from. Yeah, it kind of makes it a little predictable when you see like... Um... Portugal voting for Spain or something along that lines. And um, it almost makes you think, is there something more to it? Is there any xenophobia going on? You know, um, we were talking about Hatari earlier. We were saying um, how he, they created a statement while they're in Israel about Palestine. Can you talk more about um, what they did during the broadcast of the final? It kind of goes a little bit beyond just the events of the final itself. Uh, Iceland had kind of been hemming and hawing about whether they wanted to perform uh, and and present an act in Tel Aviv last year. And they ended up sending Hattari, who are, as we mentioned before, brash and ballsy and, you know, not afraid of making statements. And oftentimes artists, when they're on site, will take the time to, you know, either just lounge around, kind of get a little bit of a feel for the city, do a little bit of training between rehearsals, things like that. Hattari took the time to not just sit in their hotel room and, and pout. It's like, oh, no, we don't want to spend any money here. They took the time and they went to places like Ramallah over on the Palestinian side of things. And they ended up um, working with a Palestinian artist uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but he's incredible. Um, 
Shamarad? Are you talking about the one that they collaborated with? Yes, uh, Clefi and Samed is the name of the song, which is both in Arabic and in Icelandic, which are two tastes that I didn't expect to go as well together as they do, but they do. Mm-hmm. But they ended up taking their time in Tel Aviv and learning about the issues going on in Palestine. Um, and on the night of the final, because they had made no secret that, you know, we want to represent Palestinian interests, not necessarily like representing Palestine, but we want to, we want to make sure that people watching at home know that this is a thing that is happening. And they sneakily unfurled Palestinian flags and banners as their points are being read out. Uh, and I've never seen a camera cut so quickly off of an artist before. And uh, it was, it was, it was shocking. It was, um, I mean, to, to most of us in the press center, most of whom were not Israeli, kind of knew that they were going to do something like that. But the, the audience in the arena who were primarily Israeli, uh, that was, that was ballsy of them, frankly. Um, and yeah, I mean, Eurovision is at its heart, not supposed to be a political event. But sometimes if an act feels the need to make a statement, you know, what are you going to do? Duct tape them? I mean, a lot of people see their art as a way to express how they're feeling about anything and anything, including things that are possibly touchy subjects. And the fact that Hatari got um, got this got Eurovision as a, this large of a platform to to show this off, I think, was a wise thing to do. Um, and it's great that they collaborated with Palestinian artists in a way to raise the raise you know raise their platform in order to uh, to kind of show them at a higher level, so people know who they are, and also that they are also creating art in a, their own unique way, which I love, and that's like kind of a beautiful thing. Um, do you also remember when they were in uh, Israel? They wanted to do like. Um, it was like a game where you like pulled the other person's pants down, I believe. Yeah, traditional Icelandic trouser, trouser rustling. Yes. Yes, yes. And I thought that was a really uh, profound way to to create a statement because they were also talking about like like they wanted to expose the prime minister for what they felt was some sort of fraud, you know. Um, and of course, that is very a travesty to to segregate people like that. And they were kind of doing it in a way that was like saying, "Hey, you're exposing them." we're going to expose you <laughs> if you agree to this. Of course he never did, but it kind of helped raise their profile a little bit at Eurovision so people knew who they were more. So that was also like a weird win-win sort of, <laughs> but not but not in a good way, not like a more like a kind of like icky feeling way. <laughs> yeah, but it it honestly it worked out very well for them. Uh there were it was a full house in their in their press conferences. We were all excited to see what was Hatari going to do next and it was even little things like when the the moderator of the press conferences, who wasn't necessarily the host of the whole show, but, you know, would run these conferences, you know, welcome Hattari and try to be as civil as possible and invite him to the seat. It's like, no, we, we prefer to stand. And just little little things like that of, you know, we are who we are. This is the statement that we're going to make. We're not going to be, you know, it was it was really very, very fascinating to see the delegation kind of embrace that and and play that game in a very, very interesting way. It was, it was ballsy. It was really, really ballsy. Yeah. 
their interviews are so fun to watch. They're very deadpan. I'll also post a compilation of some really fun uh, interviews um, from them because they were they they know exactly who they are. They say it bluntly. They say it they say it with simple language, and that's it. You don't get any more information, and you don't get them to elaborate. That's all you get, and it's it's kind of funny in a way. Like you want to laugh, but you're also like, but they said something kind of terrible or like kind of serious, and you don't know how to how to react, but at the same time, you're like, well, that was intriguing. I want to learn more, you know? And um, I think that's a really interesting way that they they had presented themselves and they knew exactly who they were. They right. Were. I mean, yeah, they, they blended art, satire, comedy, and deep political commentary in a, in a really masterful way. And whatever, wh- whatever side you yourself are on any political issue, you kind of have to look back at them and say, well done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the power of Eurovision can go a long way for anybody. Can it can launch somebody's career? It could, it could slow their career down. But in the end, they're coming out alive. They're still artists creating their music, and that's that's. I think that's what it. That's the be all end all of why why we both love Eurovision. You know. With that being said, I think it's time for some trivia. What do you think, Samantha? Oh, absolutely. Bring it. Bring it. Oh my. Oh my gosh. Now, I gave you I I I gave you the uh possibly difficult duty of trying to stump me with my Eurovision knowledge. Do you think you're up for the challenge? I'll try my damnedest. Okay. I'll have you go first. Ladies first. Oh, thank you, my dear. All right. So this is sort of a four-parter, so it's not just one question, it's a four-parter. But not all Eurovision champions were born in the country that they were representing. Uh, I will give you four winning Eurovision artists, and you just give me the country that they were actually born in. For for example, if I were to say Her Royal Highness Celine Dion, you would say Canada. Mm -hmm. Okay? We're all all cool? All right. Okay. Yeah, sure, Quebec if you want to be all separatist about it, but sure. (laughs) We're talking about provinces, right? (laughs) I know, right? Close enough. All right. So these will be more or less increasing in difficulty. So we start with the winner from 1997, representing the UK, uh, Katrina Liskanich of Katrina and the Waves. She is American, I believe. She is American. I don't know where exactly. Topeka. She's born in... Really? Oh my gosh, yep, she's from Kansas. Wow. Small yeah. world. I did yeah. not know that. Huh. All right. Uh, level two. If, uh, if if Katrina and the waves were a little bit too easy for you. All right. 1980 and 1987. <laughs> Johnny Logan, who represented Ireland. What country was Johnny Logan born in? He was originally born in Scotland, I believe. Or no, was he, was he Welsh? Oh my gosh. A little bit further out. He was actually born just outside of Melbourne, Australia and moved to oh. Ireland as a young one. How old was he when he, when he moved? Did you know that information? Uh, I think he was about three, according to my, oh. my cursory <laughs> Wikipedia. Wow. Yeah. But he's yeah. mostly Irish. <laughs> oh yeah. His, so yeah, his, 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 yeah, his family is Irish. I think yeah. his father was, was touring throughout Australia uh, and, and as a, as a singer at the time and he was just born there, but yes. Uh, level three, a little bit, a uh, little bit more recent, uh, 2001 singing for Estonia. Where was Dave Benton born? 
Dave Benton. That was a winner, correct? He was a winner. Yes. These are all winners. Our winner. That was he was from the Caribbean, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly where though. Haiti, maybe. No, a little bit further south. He was born in Aruba. So I, I would have, oh. I would have said the Kingdom of the Netherlands. I would have accepted that. But no, he's from, okay. he's from Aruba. Okay. Well, All right. The more you know. Yeah. And one last one. Here's, here's okay. hope. Maybe the stumper. Maybe not. A uh, little bit more recent. 2016, Jamala, who represented Ukraine. Where was she born? And I'm going for what the country is today. Oh. Not at the time she was born. Okay. Um, can I ask, is it a neighboring country? No. Okay. Wow. I don't even know if I can guess anything. Um, what is it? She was born in what is now Kyrgyzstan. Oh yeah, I would have never guessed that. <laughs> I would just start going down the map. That's that's wow. Yeah, wow. not further east. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Well, you've definitely stumped the host there. So my hat is off to you. My thank my you. My other hat here. There we go. There you go. There's the hat. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> nice bit. hat. <laughs> thank you. Uh, mine's not that difficult or it doesn't require multiple answers, but it does relate back to one of my songs. Um, so I had mentioned that uh, Diva was the first song to um, to be um, done without an, a full live orchestra, but that was also the last year that the orchestra was a, was there if, uh, if countries needed it. Now, do you know who the um, the last person to um, perform with a live, live orchestra was? Ooh, um, you know what, if that, let's see, if 1998 were the last year where a full orchestra was available, uh, I think last in the running order that year would have been Vlada Janevsky for, at that point, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia with Nezori Zoro. Would that be possibly the one? Mm-hmm. And that, yep, you got it right on the Yes, line. yes. Now, now. Here's the next question. Do you know who uh, conducted the orchestra for North Macedonia? Oh God. Um, let's see. Uh, nothing is coming to mind immediately. Uh, the only thing that I could possibly think of, the, the name Romeo Grill comes to mind just because he was a collaborator and former husband of Calliope. And I know he's a very talented, singer, songwriter, producer. So maybe he had dabbled in um, in conducting as well. So I'm going to say Romeo Grill and probably be wrong. No, that's a good guess, though. That's a very, very nice, educated guess. It was uh, Alexander Jambazov, if I said that correctly. Um, okay. Former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. But yeah, a little fun little tidbit for you. A little bonus for you if you want to know a little bit more about the people who conducted. Um, do you know who conducted ABBA's um, live orchestra? Uh, oh gosh, uh, he, yeah, he wore the he wore the full getup. Uh, Sven Olaf, something with a W, something Dorf Wallendorf, Sven Olaf Wallendorf's name. Is it was it right? Uh, get rid of the den, and you had it all. That helps you. <laughs> Sven Olaf Waldorf, like Waldorf Astoria. Yes. Like, yes. Hey. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Yeah. <laughs> I always love the uh, commentator on that. He's like, oh, and it's Napoleon. <laughs> and then they say hey. his name. I, for some reason, it's ingrained in the memory of my heart. So I, I don't even have to look that one up. So yeah, good. I'm just, I'm just surprised I was able to cobble that together. <laughs> yeah. 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 You sure did. Great job. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, look at us. Uh, sounds like uh, you know more than I do there, but um, yeah, we're, I am so excited for you to have come into my podcast. Uh, one of my first podcasts and to tell people it's a difficult task to tell people what your vision is and i wanted to preface that by saying that it's impossible to find it's different for everybody but in the end we come together for it and that is the beautiful thing and that's where we gain our knowledge and our respect so with that i thank you so much samantha for coming on to this podcast you are a national treasure of eurovision and the world over and you are amazing <laughs> oh my gosh thank you you're gonna make me blush and i thank you I thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute blast. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Hey, sounds good. Yeah. You have your people call my people. We'll make this work. Sounds like <laughs> a plan. <laughs> All right. For more information about today's guest or the media we mentioned in today's episode, please see the show notes in your local podcasting app or visit vicuriousmedia.com slash podcast. This is Sparkle Sid signing off for another episode of Super Funkin' Serious. We hope to see you next Thursday for another fantastic episode of Cheeky Chat. Also, don't forget to be your funking best, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye, beautiful darlings and gal pals. Mwah! <laughs>